Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 92 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. How's everybody doing? Man, what a drag to uh, to not get one posted last week. I apologize. First, I want to thank everybody who sent me messages or emails asking if everything was okay. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, just computer issues, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess I should say, I had um, 14 gigs and and a few rehearsals in an eight-day span there, and there was just no way to uh, to sit on the phone with technical support with uh, with Dell. So, but they did help me get it all fixed up, and it actually, it didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would. So we're back at it, and I couldn't be happier. A special thanks goes out to my wife for uh, making sure I didn't throw the computer out a window, because uh, that's kind of how I felt there. So, thank you, Amy. All right, let's get into it here. Um, First off, Roger Simonoff has just announced his latest book, The Luthier's Handbook, Second Edition. It's a completely revised and updated release of the book he published in 1998. And as a foreword by Lynn Dudenbostel, who was just on the podcast a few weeks ago, the 104-page book includes more than 180 color photos and illustrations and focuses on tips and techniques for building acoustic string instruments. Roger covers musical acoustics, woods, soundboards, backboards, bridges, strings, finishing, a primer on tap tuning, and more. The book will begin shipping on June 1st, but as a special for listeners of the podcast... If you pre-order before June 1st, you can receive a bonus one-time 25% discount by entering Mando Beer. That's all capital letters, all one word, M-A-N-D-O-B-E-E-R. And that's at SiminoffBooks.com. I will have a link on MandolinsAndBeer.com, or you can go to SiminoffBooks.com and enter Mando Beer at checkout. Stoked. That's a great deal. So thank you so much to Roger. Thank you for the support of the podcast, too, Sarah. I appreciate it. Speaking of support, Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation, been around since the beginning of this, and I appreciate it. And if you have never checked out Peghead Nation, you need to go there. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. And that's no joke. Just check out the mandolin instructor, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning. And they have everything from beginner to advanced lessons. You can't go wrong. They have high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And if you are not following them on Instagram, you're missing some of the greatest mandolin photos that you're going to see on the Internet. So go follow them on Instagram today. And Ellis Mandolins, speaking of beautiful mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. All right, everybody, let's jump into the podcast with Danny Nicely. Cheers, everyone. Oh, yeah, by the way, you'll notice uh, I forgot to ask Danny what, what his main mandolin was, so I want to thank Danny for letting me call him back the uh, next day so we could get that on there. So it's at the very end of the podcast. <laughs> okay, now back to it with Danny Nicely. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Mr. Danny Nicely. Danny, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. That's great, man. Thank you. First off, thank you for doing for doing this. Um, as as we're noticing now, things are starting to get busy, and you've actually got quite a bit of things kind of up here coming up in the future. Starting off with a uh, July collaboration with Africa African Grio. Is that at yeah. Red Wing at the Red Wing Fest? Yeah, Red Wing Roots Music Festival. It's down in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Yeah, that's amazing. What's the uh, tell us a little bit about that collaboration? That's coming up the weekend of July tenth. Yes, uh, the uh, the artist I'm working with, his name is Sheikh Hamala Diabate, and uh, he's from Mali, West Africa. And if you're not familiar with the with the Grio tradition, they're kind of the the uh, Music, the, they're the musicians and the storytellers of uh, Western Africa, and they—it's uh, really a thousand and thousands of years old oral tradition. 
And uh, so they can tell you a lot of history, and they know a lot of songs. And, uh, you know, they, they're they really good at just bringing people together with music. And and uh, he actually plays an instrument called the Ngoni. And the Ngoni is one of the uh, predecessors of the banjo, of our American banjo. And uh, it's like a small uh, three-string instrument, and it's it's got the... Uh, the typical uh, short string on the top, uh, like the like the banjo, and uh, but he's also uh, uh, an amazing guitarist. He can play the, uh, the you know the the African styles of guitar, and and he also took up playing the banjo. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, which is uh, very cool. Uh, I've only I've only met a few uh, African people that that actually play the banjo uh him and then uh i met another fellow when i was in uh casablanca uh morocco that played the banjo and played bluegrass oh no wow so, that's amazing uh, yeah bluegrass has a pretty big pretty big reach <laughs> that guy told me in the 80s uh in casablanca they had a a big theater and the u.s state department would bring uh bluegrass bands through oh wow and uh, so he got to see uh, New Grass, and another group that he was really excited about was a mandolin player named Buck White. I'm sure a lot of people heard of the White family. And- Blaine Sprouse and Jerry Douglas on Dobro, so that you know that that pretty much rocked Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you also have another gig coming up with um, uh, your opening. You and Will Lee are opening for Sam Bush at the Lime Kiln Theater in this. That's this fall. Yes. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be uh, September the twenty uh, fifth, I believe. And, and tell people a little about a little bit about this Lime Kiln Theater. This is this is kind of a, an amazing. The, the backstory on this for you is really amazing. I find to to, to hear about this. Yeah, yeah, Lime Kiln Theater. It's just been a uh, been a mostly an acoustic uh, venue, and they had a lot of the progressive bluegrass stuff. I grew up about an hour north of there. I'm from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, and uh, that was the place where. Tony Rice unit would play, and Newgrass would play, and uh, Tim O'Brien would play. A lot of my uh, favorite stuff would, you know, that's where they would play when they would come through the the valley. And a beautiful outdoor venue. It was. It actually was an old lime kiln, and uh, just a really nice open air theater. Great place to to do a show there. Uh, they got a lot of space down there, and they're uh, all set up for the for the uh, to have safe concerts these days. And uh, that's uh, really looking forward to getting down there again. I, I, I'm fortunate to get to play there most every every season. And in fact, I think the last one of the last times I played there was uh, was with uh, Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley. Oh wow, cool! I, those those guys are great. Yeah, and you've also you're good. You you know my friend Gina Furtado. Yes, I've I've known her since she was just a just a kid. Yeah, uh, yeah. She lives uh, only about an hour away in Winchester, but I I first met her and uh, some of the the uh, her brothers and sisters and family down at the Galax Fiddlers Convention uh, here in Virginia, which I think is still one of the largest and oldest fiddlers conventions in the world. Yeah. And uh, that's where that's where people go to really uh, celebrate the music. Uh, they have competitions, and and really the parking lot picking is the is the uh, main attraction. I mean, it's like the it's the super quantum of park parking lot pickings. <laughs> <laughs> also working with her uh, younger brother quite a bit, uh, Victor Furtada, who's uh, plays more of the old 
old time style or technique. You know, he's a very, very progressive uh, player. And uh, yeah, we're actually getting together and uh, we're going to try to put on a music camp in Southern Virginia with uh, Fiddling Earl White. So that's another thing in June that's looking forward to. I really enjoy doing a lot of the uh, educational stuff and the camps and all that. I love love teaching privately. Just just good to share the music. Yeah, absolutely. So how in the heck did you get into this uh, music world? I mean, you um, you did you start on mandolin, guitar? What was your uh, what was your introduction into this in this into this type of music? I think the very first thing I ever learned how to do was a basic uh, claw hammer uh, on a banjo. My dad. Uh, was a good banjo player who played both Scruggs style and uh, Clawhammer style. And I come from a musical family. I've got, you know, I have my my grandparents and uncles and everybody playing on both sides uh, of the family. In fact, my my grandfather was a multi instrumentalist. He played uh, mandolin and fiddle and guitar. Oh, nice! So I had I had a pretty early uh, exposure. Uh, but then on the other hand, a lot of people think I was one of these, uh, oh, you've you know, been playing since you were four years old, six mm-hmm. years old. Not really. The The music wasn't really, I didn't feel like it was pushed on me. Uh, so I didn't really take to it until I was, uh, other than the, the little claw hammer lick I learned when I was a little kid, I didn't really take to it until uh, I was a preteen and uh, realized that other people my age were, were playing and and uh, getting pretty good. Uh, so when I was a little kid, have you ever heard of the Lewis family? Oh yeah. Great, great bluegrass gospel band. Uh, the young, uh, you know, the kid that played them, Little Roy Lewis's grandson, uh, guy named Lewis Phillips. He's about my age, and when I was a kid, he he could play the heck out of the banjo. But I thought it was just, uh, I thought he was a one-off. You know, I thought it was like some kind of a miracle that this kid could could play. And uh, and then when I went to the uh, uh, you know, I was kind of old enough to for my dad to take me down to the Galax Fiddlers Convention again. And uh, as soon as I showed up there, I'm like, wait a minute. There's all kinds of kids that are pretty good, like my age and younger even. Uh, and so I, I pretty much decided to get in the games in. Uh, and also, uh, about that age, I had the opportunity to, you know, the, I was going into middle school, and that was when – in my area, they first offered uh, like band where you could learn to play an instrument. So uh, I decided to play bass in the in the middle school band. Oh, cool! And uh, my dad was also a good bass player. We had a an upright bass uh, in the house, and we also he uh, you know he went through a stage of playing uh, soul music back in the late fifties and the sixties. And uh, he was actually one of the first guys in the Shenandoah Valley to to order a, a Fender bass uh, back in 19. I think he made the order in in 1958, and that bass uh, I think he got it was a 59 by the time he got it. In fact, he said, you know, the rock bands back then, uh, you know, they wore the little string ties and the suits, and then <laughs> right. and they they would even get matching instruments. You could order a set of uh, Fender instruments, you could get like a precision bass and maybe two Stratocasters or a Stratocaster and a Telecaster, and they would actually sunburst them at the same time so that they would match. I guess they were still doing their sunbursting by hand, and and so that that bass is still around. It's a nice '59 P bass, and I drug I drug that thing I drug that thing to middle school and and uh, you know played the kind of music that they were teaching there during the week and then I would 
I would join my parents and grandparents and, and all their crazy friends in the community on the weekend, uh, having a lot of fun. That was kind of when I was having the realization that, uh, yeah, well, I would have referred to them as older, old folks when I was uh, a kid, but I was like, man, these old folks really know how to party and have a good time. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I I would rarely uh, miss a chance to, to go out with my uh, parents and, and play. And then, you know, of course, when I started singing pretty well and playing, playing bass pretty well, I'd, I'd, uh, joined in on my mom's band and, and, uh, you know, was singing some harmony and, you know, we played kind of a little bit of bluegrass, gospel, country, folk, folk music kind of stuff. It sounds like you had a lot of different type of music styles though growing up that were in that were in the household you know i mean from soul to to gospel and and, and bluegrass that's that's really amazing yeah 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 and then uh you know i was uh i was always you know kind of allowed to check out any most any kind of music uh you know one one thing i did when i was a kid uh are you familiar with the eight track tapes oh yeah oh absolutely <laughs> well uh eight track tapes were kind of being phased out and everything was kind of moving into, uh, you know, I guess vinyl and, and, uh, eight track were kind of going at, at the same time, but the eight tracks were, they were turning those into cassettes, which, uh, I'm a, I'm a child of the cassette era. And, uh, but, but I figured out that I could go around and people were just giving their eight track tapes away. And, uh, my parents gave me a player and they had kind of more, uh, a lot of bluegrass and and uh, you know Bill Monroe, Ralph Stanley, and uh, and then my dad was kind of into uh, progressive bluegrass of the day, which would have been like uh, Eddie Edcock and and uh, Country Gentleman and Osmond Brothers. I was listening to all that stuff on 8-Track, but then I realized my neighbor's parents, they had uh, a lot of the rock and classic rock, you know, like The Doors and, and Zeppelin and uh, and The Birds. <laughs> so uh, I was uh, listening to a lot of 8-Tracks at one time, which is kind of funny. So when did you start picking up the mandolin and kind of focus in? Because you also, you also play guitar very well. You know, yeah, so. yeah. I uh, I kind of moved from uh, from uh, you know, it was playing bass, and then I I started figuring out how to play the guitar and and uh, learning some chords and stuff, and still kind of learning from uh, family for the most part. My my dad and my grandparents and my uh, you know, one of my uncles showed me some guitar chords and stuff, and uh, and then I was. Kind of, I had a pretty good hold on the Carter Scratch, uh, which you know, even my, even my grandmother was a great Carter Scratch player. In fact, she played the uh, played the auto harp as well. And uh, and and my grandfather, he could play uh, with a uh, thumb pick, you know, like Maybell. Uh, but he was also a mandolin player, so he could play the guitar with a flat pick, which uh, which growing up was a little more. Uh, rare in my area, but like a lot of most guys were still uh, using a thumb pick and oh, their wow. and their forefinger, and so that that was just a really big uh, style, you know. I guess Maybell Carter, she kind of uh, maybe she just dominated that Virginia style with with the people my uh, grandparents' age, and then and a little while after that as well, and. Uh, and, but I, what I really wanted to do was get that flat picking, just that single note picking, and uh, turkey in the straw.
I remember just you know racking my brain trying to to get all the notes and turkey in the straw. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was working on it, and that was when I started picking up a mandolin. And so now at a lot of these local jam sessions, uh, you know, my parents' friends, very, very generous bunch of folks. In fact, I think you'll find anywhere uh, you go to to learn music, there'll be generous folks trying to help you along, especially if you're you're a kid making a stab at it. And uh, and so, you know, without the generosity of my my parents' friends, uh, my, you know, a guy that played with my dad, a guy named Al Kennedy, uh, man, he used to update, he used to get new mandolins all the time. You know, he's one of these guys in search of the, in search of the perfect mandolin. But, you know, every time he got a new mandolin, he, you know, he, he'd let me play that song. I probably put him, even put some scratches on this new mandolins, but, <laughs> you know, so just kind of, uh, I didn't really have one of my own. So just picking one up at the, at the, uh, jam session. And I uh, said, so if anybody, like any guitarist has ever picked up a mandolin, uh, a lot of times you get the idea like, hey, this thing's laid out pretty, pretty conveniently. You know, I can kind of pick out a tune on it. It's not without too much uh, effort, you know. And uh, man, I need to give this thing a try. And uh, and then of course my grandfather, he had a house full of instruments, and uh, he would loan loan instruments out to his kids and his grandkids. And uh, the mandolin that first ended up in our house was a Yamaha mandolin, and it kind of had the, you know, it had a mahogany flat back and, and sides, and then some kind of a, you know, probably a spruce top, carved top, and it was kind of an elongated body uh, that you used to see them around. It's a, It was a Yamaha mandolin that they made back in the, <laughs> back in the day, and uh so that was kind of the first mandolin I started playing on and, you know, start, starting with the one tune that my dad knew, which was, uh, actually, I think he, he knew uh, Cindy Cindy and Old Susanna, which are very similar uh, tunes. And, uh, yeah, and then, uh, then I remember uh, kind of when I was, got good enough to have my own mandolin my grandfather fixed up, fixed up a harmony mandolin it was uh it was one of the top of the line harmony instrument it was the harmony monterey oh yeah mandolin. yeah and uh, that was a pretty good uh that was a pretty good a model mandolin i still have that that uh mandolin and uh and plus he loaned me uh he had a a gibson a model uh i think it was a a50 they call it and so I, I played an old A50 for a while, and he had a nice, uh, pretty nice, you know, Gibson F5 master model. It was a newer one at the time, like I think it was made in the early 70s or something like that. Man, that's so, what a cool, what a cool resource to have to have all that, you know, family support and you know already in there, and then the access to all that different types of musics and and musical instruments. Man, that's that's like invaluable. Yeah, yeah. When did you start really digging in? Were there like was there something that you heard that suddenly where you were like, oh my gosh, this is a this is a game changer for me to for mandolin? Because what I love about your style is um, you uh, you you play tastefully, but you have moments of just pure fiery licks so the the fact that you have the restraint to hold back like if i play this if i could play as fast and as cool as you i'd be just, i'm afraid i would just use it for for harm you know what i mean i would just be able to be like a blur of notes all the time you uh well yeah i think i think variety is the spice absolutely so, man. Uh, you know you can't play a whole bunch of notes uh, a lot of time i really you know kind of what i'm into now is uh stuff that's really uh that's kind of more uh sophisticated harmonically and uh you know if you if you don't let the if you don't give those notes time to ring, then you're kind of missing out on the complexity of it. you know you don't want something to pass by too fast, you want to take time to enjoy it, yeah, take, yeah. Time, to, take the time to smell the flowers you know? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. what kind of stuff is that that you're uh, that you're that you're kind of working on we'll We'll dig back to the past in a minute, but just to ask about some of the more harmonically uh interesting things that you're listening to. 
or working uh, on? I've kind of been listening to uh, to a lot of you know kind of piano music and and particularly in the jazz and and modern jazz. Uh, I had an opportunity to work with uh, with one of the top uh, jazz pianists because I met him. Uh, you know, we spoke for a second before the the interview about Maple Shade Records. And uh, when 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 myself and Will Lee uh, was making a album there, uh, they do a variety of music. We're we're working in the studio, and this uh, this fella comes down. He comes down the stairs, and he's still he's wearing his house coat, and he's smoking a cig. And and uh, you know, I played a couple jazzy chords on the guitar, I think. And he said, "Who's playing jazz chords up in the studio?" <laughs> <laughs> Just, just his entrance was so jazzy, uh, but his name was Larry Willis. Groups you probably heard of uh, one one of the famous ones would be Blood Sweat and Tears. Oh yeah, wow! And uh, but he also played with you know he's one of these guys that played with he even played with Miles Davis's band uh, after Sarah Vaughn and he worked with both of the Adderley Brothers and he actually got a start with a sax player uh, by the name of Jackie McLean and uh, so. Uh, we just kind of met through working at the same studio and, uh, and he really liked what me and Will, uh, was doing, you know, in fact, he asked me where I went to school, which I was, uh, you know, honored that he asked me that because I never even went to school. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I never, you know, I, I never studied music formally, but, uh, he kind of, he seemed to thought that I had and he, he you know, I think he went to, uh, Juilliard and Manhattan School, but anyway, we we uh, struck up a friendship, and and uh, you know I'd run into him once in a while. We'd play a little something, and we worked on another album uh, together for a singer songwriter. Uh, and then I do a big annual concert every year where I just kind of do whatever I want. And so I hired him on to uh, to do a concert with uh, with him, and and uh, we made a little jazz mandolin quartet and uh and boy that he was really uh he kind of plays a herbie hancock style i'm a big herbie hancock fan and uh boy he was really really opening my head up to some new uh harmonies and and uh you know probably some typical stuff that people do in modern jazz uh but man really really blowing my head up <laughs> uh, yeah larry, larry he passed away about a year and a half ago oh man i'm sorry to hear that yeah still still missing him yeah, yeah i bet man so going back to um uh when you're developing your style on the mandolin who were some of the players and what was some of the music that when you were like just starting to like woodshed and dig in and you know spending time learning all these licks and chops well uh I listened to a lot of music when I was a kid, and I think that uh, really had a had an influence uh, when I started playing. I felt like there was already so much music inside. Uh, uh, one of one of the things I was a I was a dancer when I was a kid. I was a clogger. I was in a clogging group. Oh no, kidding! And so uh, doing the clogging routines and stuff to the live music, actually my my uh, my dad's band was one of the one of the uh, bands that the clogging group would use to, to to accompany the clogging and all that stuff. And so doing the routines and stuff, you really memorize the melodies and every little part of that tune. And so I, I knew I knew many many tunes by heart before I even uh, started playing. It was just kind of a matter of developing enough technique to uh get what music was inside of my head out you know <laughs> right uh, 
but on top of that, listening to, uh, let's see, my, uh, I had, uh, let's see, it was my dad's, uh, first cousin. That'd be my first cousin once removed, uh, fellow by the name of Two Gun Terry. Uh, and he was, uh, a really good force in the, in my music community growing up. Uh, he had one of the big jam houses. They do old time music, I think on Wednesdays, uh, bluegrass on Thursdays and, and both on Saturdays. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> but he, uh, he was, uh, he had a pretty broad, uh, he listened to a lot of music that I hadn't really quite heard of yet. And one of the things that he, listen to he had this victrola upstairs in this house and you know we'd rarely go upstairs in this house but when i was a kid he took me up there and he played me these uh, uh hot club de france uh 78s Django reinhardt and stefan capelli I really liked it, but I was so young that I think the reason I liked it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's really fun. This is cartoon music. It reminds <laughs> me of the, of the swing music from the old cartoons, but he actually ran off a, a cassette tape. I think he just took a some kind of cassette recorder and put it up to the Victrola and, uh, <laughs> and ran off a wow. bunch of... Ran off a bunch of Django and Steph for me. Oh, that's and, cool, uh, so I, man! I remember, I remember even as a little kid coming home from school and kind of listening to that, listening to that music to kind of uplift myself after a long day of school. And and uh, you know, I would start to kind of sing along, and and uh, you know, I'd be singing along with the Django licks on the guitar as a kid. I didn't really realize that I was memorizing a lot of that stuff uh, for later when I started to play. Uh, you know, some of those licks were still there. And uh, and then I also, uh, shoot, I remember once my mother taking me to the library and, uh, you know, realized there was a, a record section. She's like, oh, yeah, check out anything you want and try something out. So I, I got three albums. One was Bill Monroe. And because uh, I'd heard, a, you know, a lot of bluegrass locally, and uh, just by, you know, people in my area, but I, I hadn't really heard the, the actual recording that, you know, people learned it from. So that was cool to kind of hear the real thing. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm hearing, I'm hearing uh, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys on recording uh, for the first time. And uh, so I like that. Uh, another thing that I got was a Grateful Dead album. Oh, cool, yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, of course, I thought the album cover was cool. I, don't, I forget the name of the album, but it was, uh, you know, one of the ones. It was kind of blue with the skeleton and the flowers oh, right, on the right. front. It had, you know, Casey Jones and and uh, Ripple and and uh, a lot of those great. So I like that one. That was pretty cool. I'm I'm guessing I was maybe about eight years old at the time. And so that that was pretty cool music. And the other album I got was I'd heard the name Miles Davis. So I was like, oh, I'm. <laughs> I've heard it. I heard him. I'll try this out. Uh, and it was one of his more modern albums. Uh, it's the one with, uh, oh, shoot, Marcus Miller on bass and and uh, Mike Stearns on the guitar. Uh, and I did not like it <laughs> <laughs> at the time. Sure. Uh, it's an acquired in later taste. Years, it's, it's still it's one of my favorite albums. One of my favorite albums. I love I love the music. It's just very unique sounding uh, stuff. And uh, you know, uh, you know, Miles is a great art, a very diverse artist. And uh, and of course, you know, hearing uh, Mike Stearns uh, play the guitar later on in life, I was like, whoa.
was rocking it. I think he played. He played. He played with blood, sweat, and tears too. As a matter of fact, when a uh, a buddy of mine passed a while back, and I think as a last and final joke, he left me two electric guitars. <laughs> and uh, uh, I play acoustic. I'm mostly. I just love natural acoustic tone more than anything. Uh, but so I, you know, I'm like, man, what am I going to do with the Stratocaster? I was telling my friend. Uh, Larry Willis, the pianist, about getting this Fender guitar. He says, like, hey, you ever heard of a guy named Mike Stearns? You know, he plays a Fender guitar, you know. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely something to aspire to. <laughs> yeah, man. It, it, it's uh, two things you've mentioned here in the in the past few minutes. Um, one is, like, obviously the variety of music, which I think kind of really plays in, in following your music, you, you, you kind of also keep a variety of music and have a lot of different projects going on. The other thing you noticed, or that I really noticed about your playing, and you just said, is you love that natural acoustic tone. And I think that's one of the things about your recordings that I really, really like, um, is the tones that you generate on these albums, man. And was Roots and Branches, was that your first solo album that you put out? Yeah. That's, dude, that song, Salt Run, I didn't realize it was in 7-4 um, until doing some research for this podcast, and I was at your website and just reading the notes and different things like that, and I just, I guess I just never paid attention, which I think is exactly, I guess, you want an odd time song, is for nobody to realize it's in, <laughs> it's in an odd time, you just want them to hear the yeah. song. that uh seven four were you just were you trying to write something in an odd time signature or was it just something that you came up with uh well i uh before that uh gosh when i was in my uh mid to late 20s i uh i went over to india a couple times india and nepal and i was studying uh uh, studying, I studied music in both northern India and southern India, the uh, Hindustani style and the Carnatic style, and uh, they use they use a lot of odd time signatures, and uh, you know I'd have to say that was a pretty big influence on me. Just the way they treat the teaching of music, they're uh, very into the one-on-one uh, apprenticeship, uh, which still is the basis of traditional music in any tradition it's that person-to-person uh contact uh that sort of nurturing of the master kind of thing and uh you know we i studied many many hours every day uh, i took some sarod lessons and some violin lessons and i also uh banged my hands up on a on a tabla <laughs> for a while and uh but you know just uh yeah i've always probably before that if i you know you know some of the some of the earliest odd time signature songs you notice are like uh you know peter gunn uh or uh no what's the other one well you know one of the spy themes that people hear and of course uh you know paul desmond's take five i've heard that uh in fact i i remember messing around with take five just you know, you hear that thing on the radio all the time, and I was able to uh, to uh, sound out the, the melody in the part. I didn't even know what the chords were, just kind of sounding out the melody from hearing it and being able to sing, you know, sing along with stuff on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but the, uh, the acoustic thing, you know, when I, uh, you know, you mentioned the, I really like, you know, music is very much a connection 
uh, for me, you know, between the music and the listener and, uh, you know, my favorite way to, uh, to perform is live and, and even, even performing live, I, I, the best way is like, if your acoustic instrument reaches somebody's ear acoustically, uh, that's when they get the pure, uh, effect. And then of course, you know, through wanting to amplify stuff, you kind of start putting electronic, you know, things you don't have as much control over between you and the listener. And uh, so in order for, you know, my listeners to get a full experience, I like to have at least amount of stuff uh, between me and the listener as possible, even when we're recording. So uh, I tend to, to record everything live instead of, uh, you know, a lot of people, they'll go into the studio and they'll build things from the ground up. They'll have the guitar player on Tuesday and then they'll have the bass player on a Thursday. <laughs> right. and, and then they put the whole thing together next month sort of thing. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I like working with uh, Maple Shade. Uh, they're, a, they're a label that uh, does the audio file thing. It's just all about uh, reproducing the sound exactly the way it is acoustic uh so they're you know their listeners and clientele can uh you know kind of they know what they're getting <laughs> not not so, not so much studio magic <laughs> right right yeah, you have that album with will lee it's murders drownings and lost loves and it's available yeah. on the maple shade records and uh on their website and i'll have a link to that so um, let's talk about Jack Dunlap. You did a, an apprenticeship with him, and now this is starting to make a lot more sense because you were talking about doing these apprenticeships in, in India and Nepal. And so how did that come up? Because that album, um, Chop, Shred, and Split, that el- I mean, you can listen to that album a year straight and probably pick up something new every time you listen to it. It is so cool, man, and so much cool stuff going on. much recorded that uh live actually the way we did that is we uh we recorded our mandolin tracks live and then we went back and and uh did the rhythm section live so (laughs) so that's just one you know one take of us playing mandolins and then one uh we kind of shared jack's a good guitar player and bass player i like to play bass and guitar as well so uh and i find that's another thing that i find about recording stuff live is uh you can go back and listen to it over and over uh i even want to say things can be a little bit less organized organized uh but in a good way uh and, and and then that'll that'll give you something new to hear every time you listen to it whereas if you if you build something from the ground up and and just kind of track it one by one things tend to become uh very organized and then uh, you know, so when you listen to it a couple times, you've you've pretty much you've pretty much got it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, I think sometimes too, you, you um, when you're just stacking things, you you kind of lose the magic of things that happen in the moment. And you know, right. I, you know, when you're playing with somebody, if you're playing and listening, you can alter the way a track's going just by somebody playing a lick in a particular way that suddenly yeah, takes yeah. a song in a direction you would never expect. But if you're playing along to just you know, like you said, stacking tracks, you're kind of tied into what's already there. And so there's yeah. something to, I mean, there's something to both. I mean, there's obviously amazing recordings that are done both ways. Yeah, and, and and for me, playing music, making music, listening to music, it, it's an emotional experience. Oh, you know, yeah, my, me too. That, that's what it is to me. So, uh, you know, you really want to uh, convey the emotions that you're feeling at a certain time. And, uh, and a lot of that has to do with the people you're playing with, how you're responding to what they're doing uh, in a group effort. So, uh, you know, when you when you don't have everybody at the studio on the same day, you can kind of lose some of that uh, emotional connection. 
you know, because, you know, how did, you know, the way I decide what music I like, uh, which is a big variety, and it could be anything from, you know, something very rustic to something very uh, polished and sophisticated. But at the end of the day, it's like, how, you know, how did it, how, how did this performance move me emotionally? That's uh, that's the bottom line for me. <laughs> so how how did you um how long did you do the apprenticeship with Jack? Uh, it uh, it kind of it officially runs for a year, and uh, we did it through the Virginia Folklife program. Yeah, I remember him mentioning that. Yeah, 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 and and the whole apprenticeship uh, program was devised by. A uh, friend of mine by the name of John Lohman, uh, who at the time was uh, was our state folklorist in Virginia, and uh, you know just just realizing that you know the person to person apprenticeship is you know like I said earlier is really the basis of uh, traditional music. Uh, you know, especially you know now in a day where uh, you have all these kind of cool opportunities, you can learn you can learn stuff online. There's a lot of places to learn stuff. Which is cool, but it's he just wanted to make sure that uh, people were still doing it the uh, the way it, that it's been done for centuries, uh, and also kind of uh, keeping an eye on uh, environmental issues of uh, environmental influences. Uh, you know, because one thing about uh, folk music and traditional music is it'll usually come from a place. And so having people actually from that place, uh, giving them the opportunity uh, to share the music, because you'll find that, you know, like bluegrass and old-time music, which uh, originally, for the most part, comes from rural areas, those are actually, those are the people who aren't as set up to, to teach online and to put out teaching videos and uh, all that kind of stuff. So I, I just thought it was a real uh, cool program, kind of uh, looking back a little bit and just making sure that the, that the traditional way of learning gets a chance to happen. Yeah, that's and, so uh, one of the, One of the things that uh, when he contacted me about doing the uh, – one thing that he does is he, he contacts the, the, uh, the teacher or the mentor in the apprenticeship and uh, and then ask them uh, if there's someone that they want to work with, because uh, oftentimes there would already be a young person in the area or whatever. Uh, but when he contacted me, he said, uh, "You know, we've done we've done a lot of the teaching little fingers how to play and and this and that." But uh, you know, he said, "You know, you're a pretty advanced mandolin player, so I want I want you to like pick somebody who's already." really awesome at the mandolin and just try to pour even some more fuel on that fire (laughs) and i'm like oh i I got just the guy (laughs) (laughs) and man i love woodpecker polka I mean, when I first heard that song, I didn't even get, I didn't even go any further into the album for probably 20 minutes. <laughs> I think I just listened to that tune <laughs> over and over and over again. And um, and that is one of your compositions. And uh, yeah. what's it, do you have like the, uh, do you remember writing that by chance? Yes, I do. Uh, I usually, uh, I usually compose out of uh, inspiration. So uh, I don't have a, you know, well, I really don't know the number of compositions I have, but uh, not about that. I just, uh, that particular tune, uh, I'd played a really fun wedding gig. Yeah, those two words don't always go together. <laughs> right, right. But, man, this was a really, really uh, fun wedding gig. And uh, I was re- just so fired up when I when I got home. Uh, I still felt like playing. I got out my mandolin. And uh, and the tune just kind of came out. And uh, now, have you have you ever heard of a tune called Wild Fiddler Rag? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, so there, 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 there's a little influence of the wild fiddler rag uh, there in the woodpecker polka, but uh, yeah, just uh, I didn't, I didn't put that together at the time. <laughs> it just you know, <laughs> all those little fragments of tunes and stuff you hear in your uh, hear in your head, and yeah, the woodpecker polka. That's just the one that uh, came out that night, pretty much in its entirety. I didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, it wasn't a struggle to make that up. <laughs> it was just fun. <laughs> now, are you, like, I know you say you didn't go to school for any music education, but, you know, as far as, like, different things like scales and and such, is that something you ever, like, really dove into as far as, like, you know, learning different scales and, and woodshedding on scales? Or has everything just been kind of an oral thing and you just, like, listened to music and dove into it and, and learned it that way? Well, both. Both, actually. Uh you know, I feel fortunate to uh, to sort of uh, learn a lot of songs and and learn a lot of music uh, in a traditional way. Uh, you know, stuff that you can act, you can really play, and it's it's uh, you know it's the type of music that you're playing. Everything's uh, everything's there. It's all there before even having a notion of you know really. Uh, you know, I've kind of almost taken the music around you for granted, soaking it up and putting it back out without really thinking much about, you know, how's this really work? How's everything <laughs> really? You know, you know, you don't worry about that at first. Uh, so then, so then it's uh, it's it's more of a it's more of an emotional expression again. Uh, and then I think it's really good for uh, people to develop that for a while first because if you kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it then you're kind of looking at a bunch of parts uh and you're kind of like well, i don't know it's gonna take a while to fit all this these parts together it's sort of like a you know some kind of project you have to build <laughs> you know <laughs> right. different approach but then you know then once you uh once you're able to play well i'm not i'm not a you know like learning music as a kid i didn't it never even dawned on me that you know, I knew sheet music existed, but that's just, you don't, you typically don't use sheet music uh, when you're learning like traditional fiddle music and bluegrass and stuff. Uh, you know, still to this day, a lot of your, your greatest players out there probably don't know how to read music and they probably haven't studied formally yet. They are really awesome musicians and, <laughs> and players. Uh, but uh, in fact, uh, I did notice uh you know, some people who were trying to learn the music from notation, and I was like, you yeah, know, it sound, sounds kind of funny, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> something, something about it. Uh, but then, but then if you, uh, if you start learning music after you already know how to play, then you're just kind of uh, putting more fuel on the fire. Uh, and I've really developed a love for, for teaching music. And, uh, you know, in order to teach music i've tried to i've looked into to the way uh people learn music more formally and uh yeah i've definitely gone i'm you know i i consider myself a theory nut i can i can tell you a lot about uh scales and chords and keys and and theories that's that's one of the things i'm uh working on now uh the you know, once you get a good hold on the major key uh, and all of its uh, all of its minor children, <laughs> you know, then then uh, I've moved on to a couple different diatonic keys, uh, such as harmonic minor, uh, and then there's melodic minor, which they use a lot in in modern jazz. You don't hear that one much in in bluegrass. I haven't heard that one a lot on the mandolin yet, so it's kind of uh, kind of exploring some new sounds that I haven't really heard on the the instrument. That's kind of fun. Uh, and another one called uh, Melodic Major, which, uh, you know, is used to, used in swing, swing and jazz music, and uh, but not so much in the bluegrass and traditional stuff. So, yeah, 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 I, I study all the, all the scales. And even before, uh, I've even kind of started learning some of the typical names for the scales and such. And that's just through, uh, through teaching and, 
you know, just kind of learning terminology to to more efficiently pass things on. So you have about half a dozen students, you were saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have half a dozen students. I hardcore, you know, guitar and mandolin that I see mm-hmm. uh, every week. I, t- I teach fiddle, too. And uh, and then I have another another handful that uh, uh, come when they can, and then another handful they just hit me up once in a while, uh, just for a little tune-up lesson, and uh, uh, doing you know doing a little bit online. I kind of reserve that for the more advanced lessons because I find uh, you know you're just talking about concepts and stuff. They already pretty much know how to play. Uh, it's easier just to talk them through concepts. Uh, but for the most part, the way I teach is, uh, you know, I, the student doesn't know it, but the things that they're learning the most are sort of unspoken. Uh, I really try to set my groove, and I try to pull them into the pull them into my groove, and just so they can, uh, you know, play the music with good timing and everything. And that's that's kind of something that's hard to hard to talk about. But then if you just approach it in a certain way and drill it over and over they they learn it without saying the first word about it <laughs> that's the best way to learn yeah, yeah osmosis yeah oh cool so if so if people want to sign up for lessons or maybe do some online lessons with you they could reach out to you through your website yes and then um so this this leads perfectly into um i have one or I have two questions that i ask at the end of every podcast and by the way we haven't even really scratched the surface with you, I would love to have you on again to talk a little bit about your travelings, and um, a spo- I mean the fact that you played in an active volcano just blows my mind. So um, yeah, yeah, the first one, uh, first one to play there after the big eruption in 2014. <sighs> so uh, it was uh, very uh, boy. There was a lot of a lot of tears in the eyes. You know, people were just really glad to have something going on again. <laughs> I can't imagine how long after how long after the eruption did did you play there? Oh, it, it was uh, it was a few years. It was mm-hmm. like three years. Wow, man! Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, again, it's just like things you can't even imagine. I mean, I guess if you live near a volcano, you imagine, but you know, where <laughs> you know you can't, yeah. you know living in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where I live. You know, I don't. Definitely don't think about volcano eruptions. <laughs> yeah, you gotta so, watch out for those hurricanes. Yeah, buddy, hurricane season starts, and well, we've already got the first first tropical storm was named already. I think tropical storm Anna. Um, so anyway, the um, what I want to ask is, I ask uh, all the players if you had ten minutes a day to work on something or to recommend something to work on, what would you recommend? Gosh, uh, there's so much. It's kind of hard to decide what the. You know, I mean, the the most important thing is to make sure that you can play a piece of music all the way through. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, like I said earlier, and when I start people as beginners, uh, you know, I just really want to, we really dive in and try to get through that one tune because then they have something specific to practice. And then if so, anybody asks them, like, oh, hey, you're learning an instrument, you know, they'll actually have something to play. Wouldn't be like, oh, well, let's see, I've got half of this scale here I can play for you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard of the harmonic minor? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool, but yeah, uh, right. you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of cool tunes in that scale. Which, sure. You know, if you would just learn the tune, it, you would actually, it would be organized in a musical way and everything. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a favorite tune that you like to teach right off the bat? Gosh, I'm, I mean, I just teach some of the standard American uh, fiddle tunes first, you know, something like Old Joe Clark or uh, something like that. That's a pretty big one. And uh, I, I like I like teaching the, uh, a tune like that because uh, pretty soon on I'll point out how the, the tunes are composed as well as structure because once you re- recognize that, then you'll be able to learn tunes faster like uh, a lot of tunes, the third phrase will be the same as the first phrase, exactly, and and the second phrase will just be a variation of the first phrase, and then it'll have a fourth phrase that's the tag. And then the second part will introduce uh, a new phrase, but then it'll kind of do the same thing. You know, the third phrase of the second part will be the same as the first phrase of the second part, and then you'll borrow the tag from the first part, 
And so then you realize, it's like, oh, wow, once you learn the first phrase of the first part and the first phrase of the second part, everything else in the tag, most everything else is kind of reused or revamped information. Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's the first time anybody's brought that up on this podcast. 90-some episodes in, this is – that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, yeah. Man. And, you know, but once, once, once you get a, a song down, I, I would recommend for uh, people – and, you know, you don't have to go crazy about learning music theory and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, going, going through your scales and modes and really uh, – uh, you know, ask yourself, what does it mean to be a key? And uh, when when you can answer that question, you'll you'll know a lot, a lot about music. Uh, you know, because a key, it really only basically consists of seven things, and it's based on seven notes. And uh, you know, what's cool is like a type of music will focus on. Uh, certain parts of those seven and then uh and then you'll have another couple parts of those seven that are they show up less pop you know that less popularly less frequently uh and so uh you know a lot of people they just know the one chord and the four chord and the and the five chord and and then you kind of move on to the two minor and the six minor uh you know all the all these things have very distinct uh qualities and uh and uh, you know you don't you don't hear the seven as much uh other than it's a harmony of the five that's kind of how how we use it but uh uh but yeah kind of kind of that was a very enlightening experience uh for me just taking a major major scale and trying to figure out really uh everything related to that one group of seven notes called the major scale and uh and then you know once you do that then you can move on to to some other diatonic scales some other seven note scales uh that are not derived from that major and then you'll 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 get a lot of interesting stuff you're just kind of isolating note groups and uh, that's that's really how you create a certain sound is by isolating a group of notes and uh kind of committing to those notes for a certain amount of time. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, you'll get a lot of understanding of music that way. Yeah, that's amazing, man. And then uh, the, the last question is, do you have a favorite beer? Uh, let's see. Not brand-wise. I have a favorite type. I like really strong beer. I don't, uh, I don't drink a lot of beer. I'm kind of a cheap date <laughs> in that way. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times I'll just drink one beer, so I want it to be really strong. I kind of like the, the newfangled, uh, IPA stuff that's, uh, you know, I drink them on up, you know, eight, eight, 9%. Yeah. That's the way to <laughs> do it. One does the trick. Yeah. That's so great, man. Uh, I live here, uh, I live here in, uh, Loudoun County, Virginia. I'm, I'm way up in the very, very tippy tip of, uh, Virginia, and uh man we're going crazy with uh with breweries uh mainly wineries and distilleries too but yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of breweries uh making some good beer around here so that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing and they're strong <laughs> yeah we just yeah. played a i just played a place here in um charleston that uh a bigger company called um new realm brewing just bought an old brewery and they had a uh, uh, imperial IPA that was dangerously tasty and really strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, it was like yeah, yeah. there's no warning on that. We usually like the IPAs like that are that strong. It's like, oh yeah, you, you you want maybe just one of these, but that one was like, oh boy, you find yourself in a bit of a bit of a standing trouble <laughs> if you uh, yeah. if you don't watch yourself. But, you know, you, it used to just be say, you know, somebody would hand you a beer, you know, you could drink it. And- you wouldn't have to really. You wouldn't have to really lead, read the label, you know. But nowadays, every once in a while, you'll drink a beer and you, 
you uh you know you don't read the label first and you get towards the end and you're like whoa what's going on here and you yeah. like pick that thing up and you look at the label and you're like oh i see 9.1 all right yeah, yeah man that's a, so we should tell you that before they hand you that yeah, and, and you're and you're lucky if you do it like you know towards the end of the first one you know if you, if you don't do right. it until you're like in the beginning of the second one watch out oh, yeah. Yeah, Ugh. I got I got a terrible story about that. <laughs> so, but um, man, well, Danny, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for doing it. It's been like enlightening, and um, I just, just want to go play mandolin now after talking with you. <laughs> so right. that's always a good sign. Excellent. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this, buddy. Yeah, very welcome. So I've had to call Danny back up here and uh, ask him, what is your main axe? Yeah, the uh, uh, one I'm playing mostly now is a two-point mandolin uh, made by a fellow named Stuart Orser. Oh, where's that out of? Uh, he's uh, actually my neighbor. Oh, get out of here, really? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've been uh, watching him build mandolins and flat-top guitars and arch-top guitars for oh, pretty close to 20 years now and uh, got to a certain point where every instrument he made was just awesome you know i would have liked to have it have it you know so i finally made an order uh, and i actually saw a prototype for the one i had another uh mandolin player in the community uh had a it's it's uh it's, it's a new two-point design it's offset it's not symmetrical oh cool and uh yeah so i'm i just went ahead and made an order and uh he made it out of locust wood, out of Virginia black locust. Oh, wow. And uh, I've been looking for, uh, I don't really play too many uh, maple mandolins. I kind of like a, just a little bit of a different sound, a little unique sound. Sure. And uh, and previously I was playing a Brazilian rosewood mandolin, and uh, I, was, I was a little scared to travel internationally with it. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I was pretty excited to try this one made out of out of locust and locust is a good pretty good tone wood it's hard he said it was super hard to work uh, kind of like uh, rosewood and so uh, we I, I affectionately call it the fence post <laughs> oh i love that because <laughs> that's what they make a lot of fence posts out of oh wow that's and, cool uh, yeah i've always i've always played mandolins made in virginia uh the brazilian rosewood one that i played uh before uh, with an F model made by a guy named John Fraley. Uh, and then I have another A model uh, made by my uncle, Vernon Hughes. It's a maple mandolin. And uh, I use that one for for uh, travel, you know, international travel. Sure. The little, little A model in a shaped case, you know, things, it's nothing to carry around. Oh, that's awesome. Fits right under, fits right under the plane seat. <laughs> oh, does it really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's even better, man. Yeah. Hmm? Well, sweet, Danny. Well, thank you. <laughs> Dude, I'm so, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time here today and, and helping yeah, me edit my, my silly mistake. <laughs> All right, and there you have it. Thanks so much to Danny for doing the podcast. Thanks to, so much for you guys listening. Be sure to go and uh, pre-order that book from Roger from Simonoff Books, and uh, you guys have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.